my Govanin. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video, I'm going to talk about the history of the Palantiri, or for those of you less uh, familiar with Elvish, the Crystal Balls in the Lord of the Rings. So, in the Lord of the Rings, there are really two that we know about from uh, the books. You really only know about one in the movies, uh, the Peter Jackson's movies at least. Um, and basically the only real information you get out of it is that you can use them to see stuff. And so you kind of think of them like a crystal ball. But they're not really like your typical crystal ball. And so that's part of the reason why I wanted to make this video is to clear up a little bit of what they're really like for those who haven't actually read the books. And also to go over some material that's not in The Lord of the Rings that's in the Unfinished Tales that goes a little bit more into their history and how they're used. So, with that said, let's get started. Okay, so let's get started with the basics. The Palantiri, which is plural for Palantir, are, you know, dark, opaque, basically opaque crystal balls that uh, allow the user to see things far off. They don't actually allow you to see into the future like we typically think of crystal balls, and that's one major difference between these and you know, what we would typically think of in our world, crystal balls. But they do allow you to see pretty much anything at a, you know, at a distance. Uh, they can be manipulated to a certain extent by stronger wills, more so than weaker wills. And this is how Saruman might have become corrupted uh, through his use of the Palantir that he had. Uh, ultimately being corrupted by Sauron. It might be that he was already on his way to being kind of a power-hungry person anyway, but it certainly didn't help that he was meddling with something that was getting him into direct contact with the Dark Lord. So, uh, but that also brings up another interesting point about the Palantir themselves. How did they get here, and why are they... You know, who, why are they in the hands that they're in? That's another really interesting point that I'll get to in a minute, but first let me just cover the, the basics of their use for a bit. In the Unfinished Tales, which I'll link to in the description, uh, there's a little material about their usage and whatnot. Some of that details the fact that originally there were seven of these. One of them really only looks to the west, and it's essentially used... Uh, by the early kings of the Numenorians uh, to look towards where the elves go after, you know, when they leave Middle-earth. And there are some that are more in tune with each other, so to speak. So at one point there was one stone in Minas Tirith, of course, and then there was another one in Minas Ithil, which is now known as Minas Morgul after, the, uh, after Sauron's forces took it. And that those two had kind of an affinity for each other in that they looked toward each other more readily than elsewhere. So each one of these stones is a little bit unique. And then there was one stone that was uh, placed in the north, actually, not in Gondor, but in Arnor, the northern kingdom, that was... No, I'm sorry. I might be getting that wrong. I think it might have been in Osgiliath, actually. Uh, but one of them was a much, much larger stone that was, in fact, it's described as being so much larger that you can't even carry it with one, you know, one person can't carry it, it's so big. But it's uh, sort of the master stone. It, it can see pretty much all the other stones. It kind of has some level of control. 
So that gives you kind of an idea of how these work. Now the, the principle behind what you can see, as I mentioned earlier, you can see present events more or less anywhere as long as it's within the capacity of that stone to look in a given direction. You can see through objects, so to speak. You're not blocked by things, but on the other hand, you can't see anything that's not lit up. If, if somebody's in a completely dark room with no windows and no lights, you can't see that person because there's nothing to see. You also can't hear anything by means of the palantir. You can communicate with somebody on the other side, but it's more of a mental telepathy than a, um, than a real verbal conversation. And we can kind of see that in Pippin's little episode because he's having this conversation with presumably uh, Sauron but he's not saying anything until after the episode is basically over. So that's kind of how they work. Now let me get a little bit more into their history. So what are the Palantiri and where did they come from? Originally, these things were created by an elf. And I don't remember where I read this and I don't remember exactly the detail, but it's either created by, they were either created by Feanor who uh, created the Silmarils, which is the subject of the Silmarillion, I'll link to that in the description as well. Or they were created by Celebrimbor, who was his grandson, who was also a very well-known artificer of, you know, powerful artifacts. He's the one who made the three elven rings. So, I mean, this guy was uh, said to be, in some senses, Feanor reborn in, in terms of how good he was at making really, really interesting stuff. So, at any rate, they were made by uh, one of these two elves, and I, I can't remember where I read it, and so I can't find it. Uh, but they were eventually given to the king of Numenor, and I'll have to do another video on Numenor's history to fill that in. But basically, if you read the Silmarillion, there's good men, bad men. The good men, after Morgoth is defeated, end up with uh, an island out in the western sea to themselves called Numenor, and that, of course, is where Aragorn and his people come from. They're, they eventually come back to Middle-earth and they bring, among other things, the Palantiri with them. Uh, so that's how they came to be in the hands of men. Originally there were seven of these. When the Numenorians came back to Middle-earth, they uh, brought these with them and they set up two different kingdoms. Gondor, of course, is the one that we're familiar with because it's the one that still exists at the time of the Lord of the Rings, and there were three stones uh, in Gondor. There was one in Osgiliath, one in Minas Tirith, which at the time was called Minas Anor, Tower of the Sun, and then there was another one in Minas Ithil, which is the Tower of the Moon, which would later be taken over by uh, Sauron's forces and become Minas Morgul. That, of course, is how Sauron got a hold of his own Palantir. That's why he ends up corrupting Saruman and Denethor through their own use of the Palantir that they have. Denethor, of course, is using the Palantir of Minas Tirith, and basically it's kind of the forgotten thing. One other one, actually, that was technically part of the uh, southern kingdom of Gondor is the Orthanc stone that Saruman has. The only reason I really didn't list it as part of Gondor is because at the time of the stories, Orthanc is not really considered part of Gondor. Technically, legally, it is, uh, but you don't really get that in the story because Saruman has basically taken it for himself, and de facto, he's his own little nation. So anyway, that's 
that's where four of these ended up. And early on in the Third Age, you had a, well, and for the basically the end of the Second Age, you have uh, a, another kingdom called Arnor in the north, which encompasses the Shire, uh, Bree, lots of that territory, not including Rivendell, but pretty close to it. And eventually this kingdom, uh, and I'll have to do another video on this, it's a, a bunch of interesting history here too, but the kingdom of Arnor eventually split into three and ultimately just kind of collapsed uh, through due to various historical events in Middle-earth. So there were three stones there, one of them being in the uh, the Tower Hills, which are to the west of the Shire, uh, and that's where the stone that really only faces west was kept. And there was another stone at Amonsul, or Weathertop, and then there was another one at the capital city of Anumanas, which doesn't really come into the story much at all, but you've got these three stones there, and basically what happens to most of these stones is they get lost at some point due to the wars that took place over the course of the Third Age. Nobody really knows what happened to most of the stones of the North Kingdom. Pretty sure some of them were just lost in the sea because at one point one of the kings of the North, uh, in fact I think it was the last king of the North, was trying to escape via an elven ship that came to rescue him in the far north which foundered in the ice and that stone was lost. The stone of Osgiliath, which was the, the main master stone, was also lost to the river due to events, uh, again, wars, really. The Minas Ithil stone, of course, was taken by Sauron. The Minas Tirith stone is still in the hands of Denethor. And, of course, there's the stone of Orthanc that uh, Saruman had. And those are really the only ones left that we know of is those three. The other ones are either at the bottom of the ocean or at the bottom of a riverbed. Nobody really knows where they are. And it could be that they were recovered by Sauron as well. We just don't really know. And that's one of the mysteries that Tolkien leaves in the books. So that goes a little bit into their history and kind of explains why these things ended up where they did. Now let me point out just a few more little interesting tidbits um, just to kind of round out our explanation of what these are and why they're important to the story. So for those of you who have seen the extended edition of The Return of the King, you know that Aragorn eventually takes the Palantir that was recovered from Saruman and confronts Sauron with it. Now in the book, the same thing happens, although it happens earlier in the story, and the confrontation and the results of it are quite a bit different. But this brings up an interesting question. So if the use of the Palantir is dangerous because Sauron has one, and he can manipulate to some extent what people see or manipulate their minds it directly, sort of, although it's, it's really unclear how far that goes. We know he can kind of control what people see to some extent, uh, but if he can do these things, isn't it really inherently risky for Aragorn to use the Palantir? I mean, even Gandalf in the book, actually, when he gives the Palantir to Aragorn, says... If I may counsel you in the use of your own, don't use it. Well, Aragorn does use it, and he uses it at Helm's Deep. So, why does he feel that he's capable of doing this without significant risk? Well, one of the interesting things about the Palantiri is that, apparently, for some reason, they recognize their rightful owner. So, they were given to the kings of Numenor way back in the 
second age, presumably. And because Aragorn is the last real descendant of the kings of Numenor, he is, by right, the owner of all the Palantiri. And that means that he has the right to take them for himself and use them as he wants to. And because of that, he actually has... Uh, it's not so much that his mind is stronger and thus he can uh, bend the Palantir to his will as opposed to having Sauron controls what he sees, but because of his right to claim it, he has a stronger ability to use it despite Sauron's greater um, spiritual will or whatever we want to call it. So even though Sauron is the more powerful being in the Middle-Earth universe, uh, Aragorn's legal right, so to speak, actually gives him a trump card that he can play against Sauron. And that's basically what happens. Uh, he eventually does wrench control of the Palantir away from Sauron after directly confronting him, and he later surmises that that's why Sauron released the armies against Minas Tirith when he did. He, he kind of guesses that you know, he might have held off a little bit longer until he had a more certain uh, victory, you know, a stronger army to attack Minas Tirith and all that. But because of what Aragorn did, he decided that haste was more important and decided to try to sack Minas Tirith immediately. Uh, just another couple of interesting things about the Palantiri and how they work is <clears throat> they they can see but not hear, right? So the interesting thing about that is you generally don't see things up close or um, in great detail. You usually see things from a distance, although with an additional use of willpower, you can actually see them uh, at greater detail or more at a more near perspective. And because of that additional willpower, you tend to find that the, the mortal races who end up using these tend to be kind of exhausted after they use, use the Palantiri. So Denethor, uh, a couple of times, seems to be older or more tired than usual, and it's later guessed that what he was doing in the meantime was using his Palantir to look at whatever, you know, depending on the situation. Same for Aragorn, whenever he uses the Palantir in Helm's Deep, uh, partially because of his contest of wills with Sauron and probably also partially just because of trying to find out what he needed to find out, he actually comes out of that encounter and Legolas and Gimli note that he looks like he's aged significantly, he looks gray, very haggard. Uh, so there's a lot of willpower involved in using these things, especially if you're trying to uh, have a contest of wills with another person who's trying to control what you see. So those are a couple of interesting things about how the Palantiri work that play into some of the plot points in Lord of the Rings. And now to wrap up, I'm just going to go over uh, kind of what happens to these things at the end of the Lord of the Rings, and that'll kind of round out this video. So, what happened to the Palantiri that we know still exist? So, Saruman's Palantir was, of course, recovered and used by Aragorn, which he keeps, and at the end, he tells Frodo and Sam, and I think the other hobbits as well, that he'll basically hang on to that and use it to survey what's going on 
in both Gondor and Arnor, especially because, you know, originally Gondor and Arnor were separate kingdoms, but now they're one kingdom ruled by one king. Well, it's kind of hard to keep up with what's going on in both, but with the Palantir, he can actually get a pretty good idea of what's going on in both realms and, you know, act accordingly. So, I mean, that that's where that Palantir ends up. The Palantir that Sauron recovered and was using presumably was either destroyed or is buried under a heap of rubble in the ruins of the Tower of Barad-dûr. I mean, we don't... There's no allusion to what happened to that Palantir, but that, that's kind of the only assumption we can make. The more interesting Palantir in terms of what happens to it and where it ends up is the Palantir that Denethor was using. So whenever he ends up in the Houses of the Dead with Faramir and is trying to burn themselves alive, uh, he does end up, of course, burning himself alive. And this is another distinction between the books and the movies. In the movie, Peter Jackson has uh, Denethor run all the way from the Houses of the Dead off of the giant uh, prow, so to speak, of the that huge rocky uh, um, promontory, I guess is the right word, that juts out from the center of Minas Tirith. Of course, there's no way in real life he could actually do that, and Tolkien wasn't so stupid to think he, he could do that. In Tolkien's story, he actually just lays down on the pyre and dies. But the interesting thing about that is he lays down on the pyre with the Palantir in his hands. It's at that point in the story, right before he burns himself, that he basically reveals to Gandalf and... Uh, Pippin, of course, who's also there, uh, that this, this is how he's been getting his information. This is how he knows that it's hopeless, and this is why he's, you know, given up on the entire enterprise of trying to hold off Sauron's victory. And so that's when Gandalf finally knows for sure, you know, that Denethor has a Palantir, though he had probably suspected it before that. So Denethor burns himself, well, he has his... I don't remember if he actually, I think he thrusts the torch in himself, even in the books, but he lays down on the pyre with the Palantir in his hands. The Palantir survives this because it, it doesn't really um, suffer that much damage from fire, but Tolkien does make a note that anybody who looked into that Palantir afterwards uh, would pretty much only see a couple of withered, burnt hands unless they had a enormous amount of willpower to direct the uh, appearance, I mean, not, not the appearance, but direct its vision elsewhere. So that's another really interesting thing about the Palantir is that they seem somewhat capable of being changed by events in the world for whatever reason. And of course, Tolkien doesn't really explain why that is or how that works or anything like that, but it does give you the impression that certain things leave indelible marks on the way these Palantir operate. And that may have some relation to why the Palantir that was originally in the Tower Hills would only look west. Maybe there was something about the way it was made or the way it was used originally that it would only look in that one direction. Uh, we'll never really know because what he's written on it is already published and it doesn't really explain that aspect of it. But it's really interesting to think about, and that uh, that's pretty much all we really know about the the Palantiri uh, as far as how where they ended up. Of course, we know that the rest were lost, and so that's that pretty much rounds out my discussion of the Palantiri. 
So that was the video for today. Hope you learned something interesting. Hope it uh, piques your interest for learning more about things about Lord of the Rings that aren't just easily found in the Lord of the Rings itself. It's really amazing how much Tolkien wrote about uh, the Lord of the Rings and other other material after the fact that he originally left completely unexplained and you can now find in Unfinished Tales and some other works. So, I mean, it's really interesting to follow up on all that and learn more and more about the world that he created. So, hope you learned a little bit of something. Hope you found this interesting. Uh, if you want to keep learning more about Tolkien or the worlds he created, please subscribe to the channel. I'm also on Twitter at JRRTLore. And I hope to see you next time. And for the Tolkien Lore Channel, I'm the Tolkien Geek. Namariye.